I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Wood Talk for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now, here are three guys who, if combined, would make one hell of a woodworker. Mark, Matt, and Shannon. All right, welcome to Wood Talk number 173 for March 10th, 2014. On today's show, Brian wants to safely plane thin stock, Ian's thinking about upgrading to a stationary sanding machine, Dave's trying to work in the cold, Justin is pondering his micro bevel, Uh, Chris is considering a hybrid saw, Tom wants to know what happens when boards are passed over an uncalibrated jointer, that's never fun, (laughs) and Robert wants a primer on chisels. All that and more coming up, but first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. Today's show is sponsored by Brusso Hardware. Brusso has been manufacturing high-precision woodworking hardware in the U.S. for over 20 years. The entire line is produced at their factory in Belleville, New Jersey, and is available through distributors worldwide. View the complete product line, including knife hinges, butt hinges, quadrant hinges, and more at brusso.com. As a special offer to WoodTalk listeners, use the code WoodTalk at checkout for a 10% discount. Yeah, it's kind of a big deal. 10% on those hinges, uh, the the rest of the hardware that they have on their site. We'll talk a little bit more about it later, but 10% off is a heck of a deal. So take advantage of that. Uh, Use the code WoodTalk at checkout, like I said two seconds ago. And also, I just want to mention at the top, I think it'll be more fun to do this at the top of the show, is to thank our recurring donors, folks who uh, signed up for either a one-time or recurring donation, uh, Mike T., Randy T., Neil B., and Jonathan B. Thank you so much, guys, for your help. And anyone else who wants to help out, go to woodtalkshow.com. Look over on the left-hand side, and you'll see some links where you could help us out, too, and uh, help us keep the lights on, so to speak. Uh, we really appreciate your support. Yeah, so, that uh, T family worked out really awesome for us. I'm so happy they were all <laughs> able to show up and support us. Well, there was two T's and two B's, so it was the T family and the B family. Yep. Very they're nice. rivals. They're rivals. <laughs> it's a, they're competing with who can send us more money. <laughs> I'm okay with that for some yeah, reason. Yeah, so am I. <laughs> All right, let's move I'm, into... I'm still back on you saying butt hinge. Butt hinge. I know. <laughs> I, I chuckled a little bit. It's too. hard not to, but I'm trying to read a commercial for, for someone who paid for it, and I'm trying to be serious about it. So I'm like... <laughs> yeah, well, I, that, that's, that's it. Advertisers <laughs> beware. I mean... 
it's tough. We'll we'll say we'll say nice things as long as we believe in what you say, but it doesn't mean we're not going to make fun of you at the same time and it's giggle. Just, Giggle just kind bit. of it's part and parcel <laughs> with a Wood Talk sponsorship. Yeah, definitely. All right, let's move into what's on the bench. I'll go first. I am firmly entrenched in shop doors and drawers and finally getting the, the, the at least that portion of the shop to look like it's finished. So I'm just doing basic plywood doors. I, I had all these lofty thoughts in my head about, all right, this is like the end all be all shop for me. So of course I should have like really nice frame and panel doors, you know, with raised panels and everything. So then I thought about that for a little bit. I'm like, Oh, that's a lot of work. It's a lot of work (laughs) and it's a lot of wood, you know, for all those cabinets. I mean, it's basically like a kitchen's worth of cabinets. So like, all right, you know what I'll do? I'll just go for more of just a basic frame and panel. I'll use a quarter inch plywood for the panel, but I'll still have a solid frame. And then a little time went by and I'm like, you know what? That's a lot of work. (laughs) So then, then idea number three was how about I just cut plywood doors and trim them out with solid wood and hope for the best. And that's what I finally decided was worth doing. <laughs> you know, in, yeah. in my opinion, uh, I will state this once again, because I think I mentioned it previously. When you see fancy doors in a uh, shop like that, that just says that the person just has a lot of time because they're not doing anything else. I guess so, huh? You know, yeah. I mean, I would love to. It looks great. And I, I applaud those who have the time and the, the, the just the desire to do that. And I would love to be looking at those every day, you know, but at the same time, it's not a kitchen. It's my shop. And I've had plywood doors in the shop before. They're, they're nice and durable. They're, they're easy to replace if something goes wrong. Uh, and I think they look pretty darn good. So I'm, I'm not displeased with it. You know, of course, the irony of it is I trimmed them out with Babinga nice. because like, why not? Uh, no, I actually had a ton of odd sized, long, thin leftovers from the platform bed project last year. And they've just been sitting there and I don't know when I'm going to have a need for them. I'm not a pen turner, so it isn't like I'm going to chop them up into little pen blanks. Well, why not resaw them down into little quarter inch strips and use that to, to trim out these doors? It's like, it's, it's so super hard. So when, when you say you trim them out, did you just like, like glue them down onto the plywood backer or how, did, did you like, how, what do you mean by trim them out? Basically you cut your door to a, the approximate size, about a half inch shy in each dimension and right. then you're just gluing quarter inch thick solid wood trim onto the raw plywood edges. Hmm. So trimming okay. out like the, the perimeter essentially becomes a quarter inch trim of a solid, uh, solid species. Oh, okay. So almost like banding, but it's thicker. edge banding. Yeah. Very okay. thick okay. shop cut it. edge banding. Exactly. I was uh, going to say, I remember Adam Carabini doing something on nailed furniture at WIA and it was like, you take a panel and basically just nail or, or glue solid wood, like, onto it. Mm. So the back of the door is plywood to the exact size of the, of the door. And then this just, this wood just kind of glommed onto the front of it. So a true <laughs> fascia. Um, interesting. I was like, that could be nice. Yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> I should send you this picture I have of the, the cabinet doors at Hearn Hardwoods made with, um, curly koa with ebony, uh, square plugs and like some sort of bocote burl panel. Wow. You put those in there. That's impressive. Well, I get enough crap, you know, for the stuff, <laughs> the choices I make in my shop. It's like, so let, let me just go low tech on these if I can. <laughs> um, the other thing I did was I built a, uh, see, I, I'm trying to find a name for this thing. Maybe you guys can tell me what you would call it. It is sort of like a low floor standing cubby, which will have uh, a series of square cubbies for various portable hand tools. So my jigsaws, drills, routers, whatever I want to put in there. And each cubby 
is big enough to handle like a Festool sustainer, if I want to put that in there as well. And really for me, this is to address the Festool sustainer problem. Um, once you start to, to accumulate enough Festool tools, these sustainers are great. If you have either a shop where you need to store stuff away and kind of clear out your, your garage space for a car, something like that, uh, or if you're on the road a lot, their cases are fantastic. But I think the Festool cases, as nice as they are, Sustainers are really not all that different than the the blow mold plastic things that you have in you know traditional uh, power tools like your your Dewalt's your Porter cables and I find that the storage of those things it just takes up twice as much room as the tool itself so uh, you know even though Festool is a little bit better about this it's still an issue for me so by the time I have an accessory case and a tool case it's taken up two or three times the amount of space that if I just had a little cubby to put that thing into and then a little drawer above it to put the accessories, it'd be done and it wouldn't take up nearly as much space. So anyway, so you don't just like keep stacking them on top of the extractor. So you've got like an <laughs> eight foot tall extractor that, you know, you risk life and limb when you wheel it across the floor as it topples on you. Yeah. It looks like we need taller ceilings, huh? Call, call the contractor. <laughs> Uh, no, no. And, and I've always had this like love-hate relationship with sustainers. I think they're fantastic, but I'm not a road guy. Um, I'm very stationary and I don't really have much of a need for them. I'd rather see my tools in drawers and slide out, you know, pull out drawers and things like that than in these cases. So anyway, this thing is a low floor standing cubby. And then on the top where you might have a set of drawers or something on the top, I actually have a, uh, think of a, a bench or a toy chest or something with a lid that would be hinged and would lift up. But that top, maybe like the top five inches is this storage area where I could put all kinds of hardware or accessories for the tools that are in the underside. Um, so it's, it's not, you can't really call it a hutch, you know, but and you can't really call it a tool chest because it's like almost seven feet in length from, from one end to the other. Um, so it, it's a, it's an interesting hybrid piece of furniture. I don't know what you would call it, but it's for me and the way I want to store stuff. I think it's perfect. I, I'm going to call it a, a fest cubby. A fest cubby. Yeah, there you go. Fest cubby. I like <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. I don't know what you call it now, but I think a year from now you'd call it a junk drawer. <laughs> yeah, there you go. A giant that little top lid section. Oh yeah. Well, see, that's going to be where things go to die. I will fight that. I will fight that. Absolutely. I know specifically already what things I want to put in there and I'm hoping to make nice organized, you know, like in the kitchen, you have your little fork, knife and spoon, uh, utensil tray to organize. I'm hoping to make little mini drop in versions of that. So things like screws and various pieces of hardware, I can kind of just uh, tug the handle, pull the little tray up and put it on the workbench and then put it back when I'm done. Nice. We'll see. We'll see about that. So. Because you use utensils. That's so hoity-toity. I know, right? I know. We should we should go back to just using our hands, but uh, yeah. trying to or teach the kid, you know? Break off limbs like uh, <laughs> Shannon will do when he's making a new lathe. <laughs> there you yeah. go. Right. Well, speaking of Shannon, what's going on in your shop? Well, surprise, surprise. Um, I'm working on my lathe. Yay! What? Um, working, working at my lathe, I should say. Not working on my lathe. Although, what? Although I am thinking of a few little improvements here and there, the more I use it just to creature comforts and things like that. Uh -huh. But I am, um, if you guys ever uh, built something for your shows and then realize that you really need to capture a little bit more and the only way to do it is to rebuild like entire parts of the project you just built. Hell no. no. I, I go into verbal description and then that's when comments <laughs> will go on YouTube. Man, you really like to talk. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's probably why I, I didn't go this route. So essentially I, I re I turned another column for my pedestal table um, what, this past weekend and cut a bunch more sliding dovetails and things because I, I just... I don't know. I guess maybe my um, 
my standards, I'll just say, have gone up a little bit on like the quality of the footage that I take. Mm-hmm. Um, it's especially apparent because I'm going back through a lot of old hand tool school videos and um, like indexing them for chapters and things like that. And I look at it and go, man, I really should have had a close up there. I really should have done a close up there. I really should have shut up there. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm just, I've, I've become hyper aware of kind of camera angles and, and like framing the shot. So I'm up editing and I'm like, this is just terrible. I got to go redo this. So yeah, I went back down and, but you know, it's, it's kind of cool when you make something a second or a third time, you, um, you, you're thinking less about, you know, what do I do next and more about like efficiency. And, uh, it was really interesting. And that's what spawned a few other ideas, little improvements to, to my lathe. So hmm. it was good. Cool. It was good. It was nice to, uh, to kind of disconnect a little bit and just turn some stuff. Nice. Yeah. So yeah. you're disconnecting. That sounds like what Matt is up to from uh, what you I, mentioned previously. So you, you saw my, you saw my tweet that how yes. dirty I felt, and I, I, <laughs> I seriously I felt like I was cheating so bad on everybody. But you know what? That it felt really good. I have to admit it. Just like like you were saying, <laughs> Shannon. <laughs> feels good yeah. to be bad. Yeah, it, it felt really good to be bad. But more or less, I, I have a, a, a I guess you could call it a, a bathroom cabinet. I'm calling it a bathroom cabinet on legs uh, for a an old neighbor of mine. And so I'm like way behind on getting started with it. And I knew if I broke out the camera, the camera was just going to get in the way because I'm always like, – like you were just talking about, Shannon, like trying to think about like, – all right, compared to old videos, I want to have this angle coming this way so people can actually maybe see it in a better light. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to do this and I don't want to do that. So I got the camera completely out of the shop. And I went to town on this, and at the end of the day, I was I actually it, it, it's nearly finished. And I'm like, how did how did that happen? I mean, <laughs> I couldn't even make an awesome. iPhone case in less than a day. Yeah. So <laughs> it's amazing the things we can get done. But at the same time, uh, I have a feeling I'm still going to come back in and before I do the final assembly, do a little bit something on this because kind of like what you were doing, Mark. See, I'm, I'm going to connect it with the two of you here. The uh, the banding that you did around the uh, the doors and uh, for your cabinet and everything, mm-hmm. I kind of did something similar with this because I was using some uh, plywood that I had, some really nice plywood, and I wanted to give it that really good look. So I ended up doing some matching banding on it, nice. and the results turned out really really nice to the point where I'm like, solid wood. Who needs that except for <laughs> small pieces? Right. Um, right. Yeah. If you do, I mean, if you treat it right, plywood is uh, definitely a nice material to have. That's for sure. Yes, for sure. Well, but cool. that that was the the big thing for me. Although you know, this got me thinking more, and this is kind of like one of those podcaster things where I wouldn't mind getting myself maybe a couple of more cameras, like some GoPros or something, setting them up strategically around the shop, and then when I go in there, just like hit those, <laughs> turn and, them all on, and get what you get. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and we'll just make it like some sort of reality show. Oh, it already is. Well, and that's that's what I did a lot of. I was playing around with my GoPro and like mounting it to my tool handles and things, which gets a really cool like first person, actually better than first person shot while turning. Um, but inevitably, when I've got multiple cameras going, that actually just makes my life so much harder. <laughs> it does when it comes because <laughs> then I feel like, oh, this is a great shot. No, this is a great shot. And it's like, how do I incorporate those two? And you start doing picture in picture, and then it's like you suddenly turn into CNN with like a ticker on the bottom and a picture, <laughs> picture up top. And, yeah. It's just, it, sometimes that, that doesn't work out well for me. Well, I was, yeah. whenever I think of the multi-camera thing, I'm just like, you know, for the occasional shot, fine, but it's so much more work than, than just a single camera and what you actually get for the, the viewer. 
is really not all that valuable, you know? Right, so I'm right. like, there's just no way. I mean, maybe someday, but not anytime soon. I was going to say, what I need is a cameraman or woman or a woman, preferably you a know, woman, frankly, when, when you watch like Lee Nielsen videos or, you know, any company that produces professional woodworking videos and they've got like a film crew with multiple cameras, you know, even watching the Woodwright shop, you know, there's that yeah. other guy with the close angle constantly following what you're doing. There's another guy constantly capturing the wide angle. That would be cool. Yeah, and, and he's then, also then uh, I wouldn't be slowed down. Well, he's yeah. also sitting there looking at his watch the whole time, going like, <laughs> "Come on, right. dude, I'm on the clock here." So there's there's there disadvantages that. to that too. I keep thinking of the uh, the interns or the uh, the assistants that we always see at the wood shows that the camera is not anywhere near the action and they're staring off at the one semi attractive person in the back. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Let's move into what's new. Got a couple of things to share for you. Uh, share with you. Uh, Jason in this link to a fantastic Maloof sort of documentary style look at the Maloof shop back in the, uh, I guess looks like it was in the nineties. Uh, but he was about 88 years old at the time and oh, it could have been in the early two thousands then, huh? Maybe. I, I should have looked at the date. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry about that, but it's, it looks recent enough and, and um, Maloof has since passed. So um, it's a very interesting look at the business and the folks who were there in the shop and it was super entertaining. I mean, you get a little bit inside Sam Aloof's head and you get to learn a little bit about the history and his family and things like that. Uh, one of my favorite parts about it, I was uh, trying to, to tell Nicole about this, was I guess he had purchased a bunch of wood and I, I don't know whether it was the guy who sold it to him, asked, inquired about it and said, I've got a client you know, that I want to get this for and it's, um, it's Brad Pitt. And Sam Maloof is just like, well, who's Brad Pitt? And he, he explained, <laughs> he's a, you know, Hollywood actor. He's in all these movies and he goes, Oh, okay. Okay. I know who Brad Pitt is. No, he still can't have the wood. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so I'm like, that's awesome. Like that's a total, you figure as woodworkers, when we get these prized boards, it's like, there's, there's a certain point they almost become priceless. Like if it truly is that good of a piece of material, you want to hold on to that no matter what. You know, it is just great to see Maloof's perspective on this. And he's like 88 years old, driving around in his brand new Porsche. <laughs> you know, he's, like, he's like, I've gotten it up to 130. That was pretty fast. You know, it's like, oh man, what what a guy. What and the and the you really get a um a good look at the shop, how things were run, and, and kind of gives you a few hints into how things must be going now um, as they divvied up the business and they are keeping things going. Um, I would really love to see something updated now and how the shop works uh, without Sam there, how it all goes down, how their customer relationships work out. Cause Sam was still, even at that point in time was still very, very hands-on with a lot of this process. And he did a lot of it himself and they were just there as his, uh, you know, more or less his assistants, even though they did a lot of the work, he really had all the final sign off on this stuff. So I'm very curious how the, like what the dynamic is like there now. It's I'd be curious to they did that with Nakashima. Actually, I think it was Fine Woodworking that, that did that. And they met with Mira Nakashima mm-hmm. and talked about what was <clears throat> what was the business like after George passed. Yeah. And that yeah. was fascinating. I'd love to see that coming out of the Maloof shop. Yeah, totally. And one of the one of the guys there, I don't know if you guys remember when I went to Vegas a couple of years ago to judge the fresh wood competition. Um, one of the guys that works there was also a judge, and I started talking to him and he kind of left the door open that if I wanted to go out there and film that I could. And I've just been like, Oh, I've got to find the, the time to do it like during the week. So it's not, it's it sort of, um, 
going into their weekend. So I want to be respectful of their time. Um, but I do kind of, I've got the guy's email. I should give them a call and like make the time to do it and see if, if they'd be willing to, uh, to let me go in there and film and just see what's up. I can't, I can't make a video that good (laughs) as this one. Um, but where are they again? They're Southern California. Southern California. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like they were close to the Pasadena woodworking in America show. It's all fairly close as long as you don't uh, account for traffic. traffic. (laughs) And none of it's really that far. It's just you got to get through all the cars between you and and the thing you want to get to. Well, you know what you need to do is save up all those questions that you have and that you you want to kind of maybe throw out there and and then just go do it. And let us know. I'll be happy to come out and assist you. (laughs) Okay. And then maybe I'll find out if Brad Pitt actually got that wood after Sam passed Uh, away. What's with Brad Pitt? Because this is not not the first time I've heard his name in the woodworking circle. Like, I want to know if he's actually a woodworker or was this wood being bought for him so that someone can produce something for him? Or was he looking to source the material for himself? Because I've heard his name numerous times in green and green circles. Well, you know, I heard a rumor that he actually has a long-term project that he wants to film uh, the biography of the original podcaster for woodworking. <laughs> and so he's trying to do some research is my understanding. Oh, okay. See, All right. Now, well, I heard that, that Matt's Basement Workshop story had been optioned in a script, and he wants to play <laughs> Matt Vanderlust. Yeah. I can't really talk about that right now, so we probably oh. should move on to the next thing that's uh, up right, here, which – which which comes from Andy, <laughs> dude. That's awesome. I want to see. I want to see. I, I want to see that. I want to see Vanderlist as uh you know as played by Brad Pitt. That would be fantastic. All right. Anyway, <laughs> that that would be really good. Definitely. <laughs> On to Andy's question. <laughs> All right. So Andy says, "Oh, actually, this is a, a link that he's suggesting. He says, hey, guys, inspiration from all three of you has motivated me to post my first video on a woodworking shop solution.' Uh, and he goes on to say that." He, Andy's saying the production value is not so good. He's learned a few things, but more or less this video is Andy himself kind of getting his feet wet into the whole YouTube video making podcasting kind of a thing. Uh-huh. And this is a neat little gadget that he put together. More or less, he's kind of, as he's saying in the video, he has limited space for uh, being able to set up his tools and he wants to get the most from a uh, mortising or chisel mortise that he has. Mortising chisel. What's, why can't I? It's Monday. Chisel mortise. Thank you. That one. And so uh, he more or less has created an XY uh, table so he can move it back and forth. So rather than having to stop, reposition the wood, he can actually kind of set up some stops, move it just using a little crank back and forth, uh, side to side and forward and back to really utilize this whole entire thing without having to waste a lot of time and, of course, the space for it. So cool. kind of a neat little video. Very nice. I like it. Well, we had uh, this comes in from David, and actually we we brought his. I don't know if it was last show or not. We were talking about green and green, and uh, we were talking about um, th- that other green and green guy that wrote the other book on green and green. This comment comes from that other green and green guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, uh, David Matthias. Yes, that's so. Uh, we couldn't remember his name last week, but yeah, yeah. Go ahead. So thank you, David. Um, he sent a, a link from Design Milk, which, by the way, if you guys have not hung out on Design Milk at all, just a cool place for inspiration. Mm-hmm. Lots of wooden furniture, lots of non-wooden furniture, but just very, very cool stuff. But um, this is called uh, Exploring the Properties of Wood in an Artistic Way. And essentially, <clears throat> it's like uh, the maker is – maybe he was trying to get his, his black belt or something because it's a lot of broken wood. <laughs> so imagine like an upside-down U, and that's like the 
undercarriage of a table. Well, the legs have essentially just been snapped from the main board and bent down at an angle. And it's very, very cool to look at because um, it's a lot of splintered wood. And it's really hard in looking at this and seeing how it's actually joined together. Yeah. Mm. There's like a little tiny miter joint right at the bottom. Um, and I can only assume there must be some sort of strengthening something in there. Uh, but this is like full-blown snapped and splintered wood. It's very, very cool. Um, I, I still can't imagine how it's fit together. Maybe I'm, it's just hot glue. And I'm wondering how <laughs> the break is very consistent. Yeah. If you look at the break on each side. And that yeah. in and of itself is a little bit of a feat to make sure that yeah, they break consistently. Yeah, how they got that to break like that is crazy. Yeah. I, don't so know. I wonder if Mr. Miyagi came in and it was, yeah. <laughs> it could be. Yeah. Next one we've got here is from Lee. Uh, he says, what the dark side rides. And this, this is interesting because this is not the first Star Wars themed rocker that I've seen in the past couple of weeks. Um, what did we see? The Tauntaun a couple of weeks ago. And now we've yep. got an at-at. And uh, it's awesome. The guy says that he tried to play with, and if you're not familiar, this is the big robot walkie things that look like big dogs that were in like, uh, I think it's Empire Strikes Back. And uh, very, very awesome. He he sort of toned it down so that they weren't so, to, to make it look a little more fun, a little bit more child friendly in a right. sense. Um, but he did a really great job on this rocker. Uh, my only concern about it is if you take a so if you scroll down on that page and take a look it looks like a very narrow seat that looks like a like a, a coccyx banger is is that a good way to refer to it i, I think that's a, a deterrent to make sure that the child doesn't actually mess it up yeah it, it looks like that would hurt your butt really really fast um it's a very narrow seat and you're sitting on wood but who knows it's a kid's butt but even still it's only a couple of inches wide um so i don't know but it, you need but, the, the saddle from the Tauntaun rocker to put over top of the <laughs> That's the thing. It's hard to make a rocker without some sort of a saddle, even if it kills the, the visual effect you're going for. You kind of need it there if you actually want someone to use it for any <laughs> extended period of time. Uh, but it is awesome looking. Yeah, I, I would it was not funny because when that one came in, I immediately thought, I know you just had a picture up of uh, that, that kid you have. And oh, that, that, that he was uh, finally old enough to maybe you know, break out the one well, you what's created. His name? That kid that keeps hanging around and asking for food. Yeah, exactly. And, and why do you need to change stuff in his pants? <laughs> I know, exactly. Uh, all right, so no poll of the week this week. We do have, a, let's see, a couple of kickbacks. Here's a, a voicemail kickback, and I'll explain it after. Okay, so this is the uh, information on the Bluetooth stereo headset that Mark said he couldn't hear because I was using the Bluetooth stereo headset. Actually, I was using the Bluetooth connection in my car, but that's just a fine point. What you want to check out is a Bluetooth stereo headset. It's manufactured by LG. I think it's called the LG Tone. Works really great. Costs about $69. Check it out. All right. Bye. Okay. So first of all, that's that's the same uh, the same one. I believe someone else kicked back to us and mentioned the LG unit that they uh, said was pretty handy. So th thanks for that recommendation again. But the reason I played it was because I actually kind of felt bad for the guy. This is the second time he called, and that was only a little bit better than the sound quality of the last one. It was better, but not by much. <laughs> so it's... He's just, he's going through a tunnel. Yeah. That must be it. I don't know if it's his, if he was still on his car Bluetooth or what, um, but I wanted to play it so that he could hear what he sounds like in case he thinks he sounds clear. Um, at least this way, he knows Maybe what... Maybe that's just his voice. That's what Come it is. Come on now. 
Yeah. What was uh? Oh, what was that? He's that... his he um he was the guy that played the 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 teacher on Charlie Brown. <laughs> and there you go. Wah, wah. <laughs> I was thinking of that movie Robots, uh, where the there there's a scene in there where the guy yes. is making that noise like he's on a um a speaker. Uh, anyway, right. anyway, it's in, in like the train station scene or whatever. It's That's right. Good stuff. Anyway. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, we got a couple more kickbacks that were a little late to the game here. You want to yeah, get the, that one? We'll do this one from Nick here. And Nick's in this one. And he has, he has a couple of things in here. One is really, really old, so I'm not even going to mention that one. Sorry, Nick. I'm, I took a little editing license there. Mm-hmm. But he wanted to point out to the guy that's making the small parts for toys, use a dop stick. And I'm not saying that wrong. It's D-O-P is how he has it on here. Dop stick with a hot glue gun. Uh, you can safely grip any part of the shape with a larger, longer handle and release the glue with a hot air gun and chisel or razor. The hot glue will fill in the grain and oak, oak species. Almost said sap. Oak species, but you can easily be it can be easily sanded and scraped away. Lastly, always pressure wash or scrub reclaimed uh, wood before running it through the planer, especially especially if it is old flooring. Mm -hmm. And in case we you haven't heard this lately, uh, apparently his wife hates us. Well, Mrs. Nick. Yeah. Well, although he says my wife hates you, so that could be one of us. Just one of us. I don't know. That, That might be a collective you. Frankly, it probably is. It like most royal, likely is. Yeah. Well, you know what? Nick's wife. Fine. 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 That's You're not fi- invited to the next show. Yeah, that's fine with us because you know what? Um, I don't know. And we're going to make it very enticing for Nick to want to purchase things that you don't want him to purchase. And <laughs> we're going to get an offer coming up very soon. We're going to make it even worse. We're going to email yeah. him ideas of things that he could buy. It'd be very if you pretty. have a problem, you can vo- leave us a voicemail via your Bluetooth that we won't be able to understand. <laughs> Actually, you know, we're starting something very much like Columbia House Records and Tapes. We're going to, we're going to have tools that we're going to send to you. And it's your choice to either keep it or send mm-hmm. it back. Exactly. And it's but just we're going to so, bill you regardless. It's so <laughs> inconvenient to send back. So, um, all right. Anyway, yeah. No, you know what? We're gonna win her over because uh, that's just how we. That's how we roll. We don't fight. That's true. We're every lovers, wife, not fighters. Every wife that came to our little meetup in Cincinnati liked us by the end. Yeah, yes. both both of them. Yes. Right. <laughs> See, and I only remember one of them actually. It's a hundred percent success rate. <laughs> I think it wasn't Nick's wife was there for like not not actually this Nick. Uh, Nick Brown wasn't his wife there with the baby for like two seconds. <laughs> the baby was like, <laughs> yeah. the baby was like, this is that not an environment was nowhere yeah. fit for a baby. This is not where I want to be right now. Get me out of here. Um, yeah. And then there was that other chick who wanted to make sure we knew how to pronounce Louisville. Right? Oh yes. Yes. And, and there was another one who actually hit me and, uh, she almost left a bruise. If I remember correctly, I think she was going for a concussion. That was that actually was my me. wife. Wasn't it? <laughs> no, no, no. That was a different one. <laughs> all right yeah and i think your wife almost liked us shannon i'm not sure i think she just tolerated us uh frankly um i think shannon just tolerates us sometimes that's true all right well you know what let's talk a little bit about our sponsor of the show bruso and uh i did want to discuss this because i think bruso hardware if you're not familiar with it uh really really good stuff over the years when i've had that special project either a small jewelry box or something where knife hinges are involved uh, I usually try to spare no expense when it comes to hardware because you put all this work into the project and then you go buy these flimsy cheap pieces of um, you know steel, stamped steel or something like that and then you wind up uh, having problems with the way something as important as the way a door opens or a lid opens. That's not the place where you want that uh, to happen. So I think for, for those really special projects, I do think it's worth investing in really high quality hardware. And over the years, ever since my first 
jewelry box that I made. I bought some Brusso hardware at Rockler. Uh, since then, I've been getting the, the hardware online and I use them for knife hinges, butt hinges. And in fact, recently on the Humidor project, I used them for the, my first install of Quadrant hinges, which was a, uh, a quite a treat to get involved in that. Um, you check them out at Brusso.com. You could see all the different types of hardware, knobs. Um, the, the other thing that they sell that I really appreciate is they have templates and uh, little excuse me, what do they call them? <laughs> they're like, basically they're little helpers to get you, uh, to help you install these things. So yeah, they're called templates. Is that what yes. they call them? I just wanted to make sure they, that's how they refer to them as well. Huh, I didn't know that. That's oh cool. yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. They're awesome. And if you're looking at really precision hardware, getting, getting a little bit of a help with the template is good. Now, I mean, I, you can also make your own if you wanted to, but if you happen to, maybe you're trying to sell a line of jewelry boxes, this is something you'd want to invest in because you could use it over and over and get perfect results. So Anywho, um, really high quality hardware, super important, I think, on very good projects. Now, we all come from this at a little bit of a different perspective. I don't believe Matt has ever used Brusso hardware, and Shannon, I believe you have in the mm-hmm. past. So um, any anything specific you want to mention about the, the quality differences you've noticed with, with Brusso? Well, think about it this way. We spend a lot of time when we cut joinery and mortises and things like that, making sure that it's got a flat bottom and then it's square and all that stuff. And then you buy, you know, a cheap hinge that isn't flat or square and you try to fit it in there and you end up having to basically jump through all these different hoops Mm -hmm. to make it work. And before we went um, live with the show, I was talking about the fact that some of these cheaper hinges, they don't, um, they don't actually open in a consistent arc. A lot of times you'll find that the the barrel itself is slightly asymmetric or or eccentric is the word I'm looking for. Right. So it opens in this like elliptical arc and that can cause real problems of getting, especially a box where you need like this flush fit to line up. And um, there's been times when I have skimped a little, I just need a little hinge, no big deal. And I kick myself (laughs) because I end up, you know, I cut this beautiful mortise and the hinge doesn't fit in there properly. And I'm like, what the hell just happened? Yeah. And you look at the hinge and sure enough, it's not the same thickness throughout. It's tapered. Um, it's just, it's a pain in the butt. So it's just trying to fit an irregularly shaped object into a nice square mortise that you've already cut. It right. just doesn't make sense. Well, so, and, and um, the thickness is a huge factor. They're hitting, their leaves typically are, at least from what I've seen, like two to three times as thick as most of the other stuff that's out there. Yeah. yeah, just just looking at it right now as you guys are talking, I'm going through their their website and it's insane. Just the finish and then the instructions and then everything else on this yeah. this this uh, project I'm working on right now that I've kind of got hidden away. I'm really finding looking through here desperately to find what I'm going to use for it because this is these these look just too amazing. Well, if you've ever installed knife hinges, that's that was really one of the times where I, I learned to truly appreciate the the quality difference there. Knife hinges can be a little bit tricky. And getting them installed right, getting the action to be perfect, if they're slightly off, you will, you know, can and will have a door that doesn't quite function the right way. So for me, it's a matter of reducing the variables, right? So if I can at least say, well, I know it's not the hardware. <laughs> like right. if, if there's a problem, it's probably because I screwed up, not because the hardware uh, the leaves are inconsistent thickness or, or like you were talking about, Shannon, the barrel um, isn't manufactured uh, to a high enough standard to make it nice and consistent. So um, reducing those variables to me is a, a huge factor. Um, now, I, because we like to make sure you guys get something in exchange for uh, talking your ear off about this stuff, I want to make sure you know about that 10% off discount. Um, and I'll admit, you know, their, their stuff isn't cheap. 
if you go to Home Depot and look at a couple of sets of hinges there, you're going to find a big price difference, but there's a massive quality difference as well. And that's mm-hmm. what's uh, really worth paying for. But uh, the folks at Brusso were kind enough to offer up 10% off to Wood Talk listeners only. So if you use the code Wood Talk at checkout, you will get 10% off. So this is a good opportunity. I don't know if they're going to work with us again in the future and offer a similar discount. So Hinges are things that you kind of use a lot. So if you've got a a little bit of money, uh, go ahead and buy a couple pair and hang on to them. Even if you don't need them right now, you will need them in the future. Um, Frankly, I'm thinking about stocking up on some uh, knife hinges because those just tend to to come around quite often for me to to use them in a project. So 10% off. Um, Sweet. Yeah, good stuff. All right. Thanks to Brusso for uh, sponsoring the show. Let's move on to our voicemail. We do have one here. Brian, I think he says Brian. I had a hard time understanding him, but uh, he has an issue with planing thin boards. Hi, guys. This is Brian Wentz uh, from uh, Kingston, Ontario. I have a question about milling uh, small thickness boards without uh, the use of a drum sander. Uh, I'd like to be able to do it uh easily on the planer, but I'm worried about chipping and breaking small boards, especially when you get under three-eighths of an inch to a quarter of an inch. Drum sander is just too much out of my price range, and quite frankly, I hate having to uh, hand-mill you know, boards that thin for small, unique projects. Do you have any other suggestions for milling small socks, resawing socks to make them to a specific size without the use of drum sanders? That would be great. Thanks, guys. Love yourself. Take care. Bye. All right. The most common solution that I see to this, and this works for lunchbox planers, big planers, whatever you've got, is to use some sort of a sled. And that sled will allow the head of the planer to be up a little bit higher so you're not into the the danger zone. Uh, Generally speaking, most planers do allow you to get down to about a quarter of an inch. Um, The risk you run any less than that is that the piece then becomes so light that before it can really hit the pressure feed roller, it can get sucked up into the blades and just explode. Um, So it becomes a very fragile thing at that stage. So if you can get this um, little thin piece of wood on, let's say, a three-quarter inch piece of plywood, uh, you want to make sure you have a fence behind Behind it, so the trailing end should there should be some supportive material that's sacrificial, and it will get planed. So make sure you don't use any metal fasteners in that. Uh, just glue alone will will do for for that, and that will essentially hold the workpiece so it doesn't slide back. You might still have a little bit of lifting in the front. So you may need to use some carpet tape, double stick tape, or even a small dab of CA glue, something that'll dry quickly, and that will hold the front down. So you've got it supported at the front and the back, and the carriage will just kind of work its way through, and you could plane it. Well, you can't go, you know, drum sander thin, but you can definitely get down to an eighth of an inch. You should have no problem with that. Uh, and that's, uh, from what I've seen, that's the most common solution for very, very thin stuff when you don't have a drum sander. Have you guys heard of anything else that people tend to do? No, that's exactly what I've done. <clears throat> you know, when you get below an eighth of an inch, no. Um, invariably, it will end up, you know, chipping or tearing up or something like that because there's just the wood itself is not substantial enough to resist the uh yeah the stress on it but right. he, he said three eighths that's that's plenty right um, yeah three eighths on a sled sure he should even be able to get three eighths you know with i guess it depends on the model and i don't want to say across I the board. Say, i wouldn't even use a sled with three eighths but oh it, yeah i mean once it to me it's a quarter is about the danger zone that's about where my comfort level you know and i think even on most of the uh the the lunchbox one the uh pre-dimensioned size, those step downs that they have, I think quarter inch is 
the final one on mm-hmm. there. So three eighths definitely not a problem at all there. Makes sense. All right, let's move into our emails. We've got, uh, got a whole six of them here for you. So let's start chewing them up. First one here is from Ian. And it's kind of funny when I see Mark and Ian next to each other in the show notes because my brother's name is Ian. And oh, it takes you back to the good old days when you were beating the living daylights out of each other. Yeah, oh, those were so great. It was more like him beating me up. Uh, I, I wasn't really much on the offensive there. Uh, anyway, he says, I'm thinking about beating up my brother. No, wait. I'm thinking. I'm <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> wait a second. I'm coming home. Get ready, brother. <laughs> Sprother. 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 <laughs> that is what he called me, uh, ironically. Uh, I'm thinking about upgrading to a floor-standing sanding solution and wondered what your point of views were on the pluses and minuses of oscillating spindle sanders versus combination belt disc sanders. Obviously, both have their strengths, but as a first purchase, I'm uncertain which would be the best choice. The belt disc provides a nice square face to sand to, but doesn't handle curves as easily. Perhaps with the addition of a jig, I could get the spindle sander to provide some of the same benefits as the belt disc system while also allowing work on a curved surface. Okay, so I'll just give um, you know my thoughts from my experience on this, and I think a lot of it does depend largely on the type of work you do. For me, I do so much with curved surfaces and curved work pieces that hands down the oscillating spindle sander would be the earlier purchase for me and the more important one also the tool that I'm going to use the most between those now I did add a combination belt disc sander and uh, you know it's it's kind of funny I was thinking about this actually last night as I was going to sleep because that's what I do which is a little sad but I was thinking about my combination sander and about whether or not that truly is the best solution. And the reason is by... (laughs) That's really pathetic. (laughs) Yes, it is. Sorry. (laughs) It is. Uh, Yeah. I'm going to, I need to talk to a therapist now. Um, but the reason is because when I was at the William Ng school, he has very large, uh, general international, like massive size disc sanders, and they've got a nice big wide table on them, a good amount of work surface. And I'm like, you know, I don't know that I need the belt sander that that's in the combo unit, like a good size, large disc sander kind of fits all of the needs that I, that I would have there. So and this, so the work surfaces that I've got on this combination unit aren't nearly as big as the one on a dedicated disc sander. So it got me to thinking along those lines. So that's, for me, I don't even know that the combo sander is truly necessary for me. I just might sell that and pick up a, a standalone disc sander that's got an, enough space on it. Now that said, if I were doing a lot more with, um, or if I weren't doing as much with curves, then I would say, yeah, the, the the combination or just the disc sander probably would be the way to go. But you just can't beat the oscillating spindle sander for curves. And realistically, how often am I actually using something like that disc sander? It does come in handy, but it's not a precision machine. Um, you can use jigs with it that can help get things to be a little bit more precise so that you could use it for, for things like that. But ultimately, excuse me, most of the time, uh, sanding to a square surface is not quite as useful as it might seem on paper. You know, because if it's not, if you're not getting it right off of the cutting tools, you probably aren't going to want to go to a sanding tool to get right. more precision. You know, that usually doesn't work that way. Um, so again, that's just for me. I don't know if you guys have anything to add on this one, but uh, for no, me, oscillating. I mean, I, I had one of those little, it was a smaller combo yeah. um, from Grizzly and did the job just fine. I just never used the thing. Yeah. Um, I went back to the oscillating spindle sander, you know, nine times out of 10. Right. It was just so much more useful. 
Yeah, you know, the one I always think about that's like maybe a little bit of the, the best of both worlds, but you're really kind of stretching it here is Rigid used to have that oscillating sander that you could put. They had an accessory that would turn it into a small belt sander, basically. Oh, OK. And I don't I don't think it's on the market anymore. I don't know why. Maybe it is. And I just haven't seen it at my local one. Uh, but it was definitely something for the longest time that that was, was on my list. Uh, you know, I remember seeing that in Home Depot uh, many, many times. I wonder... I'd be surprised if they took that off the market because it really seems like a, a very good tool. Um, maybe maybe somebody in the marketing said, you know what? We need an, a spindle sander or a belt sander, but you've got to get rid of that combination stuff. What were you guys thinking? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and he's, he's also... Stupid YouTube. <laughs> Whoa. That was a Roundup commercial. I, I couldn't hit the X fast enough. Um, yeah, uh, what the heck was I saying? Oh, he's going for a floor standing, so he's looking for something a little bit more heavy-duty, I think. Substantial there. Yeah, definitely. So, um, But uh, I don't know. Maybe we gave him some food for thought. Hopefully we didn't confuse him more. <laughs> Us? Imagine that. <laughs> Never. Never. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, talk, speaking of confusion, I guess this isn't confusion. I was just trying to look for a good segue there. Uh, <laughs> I have a question from Dave. And Dave says, I live in Illinois, and the winter was pretty cold this year. My question is about gluing and finishing when it's cold. I keep the glue and finish inside the house where it stays warm, but when I glue up pieces of a project, I have to leave it in the cold shop. Sometimes I can bring them in the house if they are small, but often they are too large. Is there any adverse effect on the glue up if left out in the cold? And what about finishing? I'm sure that different finishes will be affected differently in the cold. Can I leave a newly finished project out in the shop to dry when it's colder? Should I plan to do all of my finishing in the warmer months? Are there some finishes best left for warmer weather? So, surprise, surprise, as we're recording this, uh, the cold season is starting to t- starting to subside, as Shannon and I were talking about. It's 50 degrees out, so we are been out in our shorts and our, our sandals and en- <laughs> oh. enjoying the, the heat wave as it is. Uh, you know, this is a question that came up, and uh, I, I think it was about a year, two years ago, I did a, a little episode at Matt's Basement Workshop, plug, plug, for a uh, cold weather woodworking. And one thing I found... If you read the bottle of your glue, one thing it has, just like finishes, it tends to have kind of a temperature range of what is optimal to be gluing anything in, or actually more like what keeps it from freezing. Because if you notice with wood glue, especially the PVA, it will freeze, which is really kind of fun because then you try to convince your kids it's a a popsicle, (laughs) and you can have some real fun with that until your wife catches you. Anyways, though... Uh, because of the fact that you're keeping the glue inside where it's nice and warm and then you're taking it outside, chances are when I have a feeling more than likely, Dave, if you're like me, you're not out there working on these projects with gloves and a scarf and everything else. You probably heat up the area just a little bit. To be honest with you, I did some experimenting with glue, glue ups in cold temperature and I had no problems with it whatsoever. The only issue you might run into and some people will freak out about this a little bit, is at the the glue line itself, because of the, the cold temperatures and the way it likes to wick the moisture out of the uh, out of the glue, it will actually create like a white frost line. And this is just because the glue is drying so fast. And it, it, it's, mm-hmm. if you've ever noticed, what's, what am I looking for here? Like when, it, when it's super dry, the, the glue will kind of chalk. Uh, but the good news is the glue in between, where you actually have the surface where you're trying to glue it together, it has no real effect on it. In fact, I even went so far as to taking a couple pieces of wood, putting them in the freezer, which was really fun to explain to the family why there was wood in the freezer, taking those out while they're still freezing, putting glue on them, doing the glue up, putting clamps on, putting it back in the freezer, and then taking it out and experimenting with it, say, a day, two days later. And what I discovered was it had the same adhesion 
as its counterpart if I did it in a nice warm shop. So as far as I'm concerned, in my experience, it's not that really big of a deal. I, I might give it a little extra glue time or time to set up. Now, when it comes to the finish, that's a whole other story. And I can't really speak too much to the finishing because when it's super cold, I have a hard time just being out there. And one problem I have noticed is that sometimes you'll get like a really weird kind of a cloudiness to the finish. So mm. oftentimes I really stick as close to the manufacturer's recommendations on what is the optimal temperature to be working with. Now, what you could potentially do is if you could heat up the shop just enough to bring it up to that minimum and then maybe keep it at the minimum for just a few hours, just long enough for the the finish really to start kind of drying, you could get away with something like that and then maybe turn off the the heater for the rest of the evening. But typically, though, I I really, really strongly recommend sticking to the manufacturer's recommendations. Mm -hmm. Can I uh, contradict you for a minute, Matt? Sorry, Mark. My issue there is you have to have good ventilation when you're finishing. So if it's cold outside and you finish in the shop and it's warm in there, um, isn't it going to get cold <laughs> as you ventilate the shop? Yeah, you're, you're either going to have fume buildup right. or, or cold temperatures. you got to one or the other. Right. Um, I need to contradict you on the um, glue-up temperatures only because there have been a few times, and obviously it doesn't get too cold here, but I remember back in my first shop in Arizona – we had a couple of times where it got down in the 30s and um, I tried to glue it up and I saw that chalking uh, stuff happen. And I, maybe it's wood species uh, having some effect here on, on mm-hmm. how well it works. But I had a few glue ups that were botched completely and I didn't realize at the time what was going on. But I was like, oh, look at the, the you know, something must be wrong with the glue. Look how it's chalking up. It's much whiter than it usually is. And it was a um, severely weakened joint for me. Hmm, interesting. Okay. I wonder if it was because like maybe it was just the test I did then because one thing I, I – the type of joint I created was just a basic butt joint, just a face-to-face if anything. So there was a yeah. lot of surface space there. <laughs> yeah, mine was just a, like a panel glue-up. It was an edge joint. Okay. So so no joinery, just edge-to-edge. Um, and it was like, okay, the glue is dry now and if you give it a good sharp tap with a hammer, you can actually pop them apart. And I okay. Was, In that case, maybe then because of how thin it is compared to – because. For sure, the piece I was working with, I would say those two faces that were glued to each other were easily well over two inches wide. Okay. And so your edge is probably more like three quarters, maybe an inch, something like that, perhaps. So you actually did a full face-to-face joint. Yes. Okay. So that can make a difference. Like there's enough holding power not to notice it. But the scary thing is that joint held together now. But if it was weakened, maybe not enough for you to notice by trying to pull them apart. But maybe over time in five years or something, that joint could just crumble at some point. You never know. Right. Um, but definitely would be worth uh, testing. I would love to see some like pseudoscience testing that the magazines tend see, to do I, on these I things. Think, I think it's a glue issue. I think they send the low test crap down to Arizona. <laughs> I figure it doesn't get that cold down <laughs> yeah. there. No big deal. This is Michigan glue Matt was using. Yeah. So yeah. that's Yeah, that's yours has a higher for... uh, water content than ours. Ours is much more, you know, substance. <laughs> right. They right. they water it down for us. Oh, man. Cool. Well, I've got a question here from Justin, um, who, let's see, um, who, I just lost my place in the notes. Okay. First time, long time. I'm not sure what that means. First First time time caller, long time listener. Long time listener. Uh, As someone who relies on woodworking for a living, time is always of the essence. For that reason, I'm always looking for ways to make tasks faster and more efficient. A while ago, when sharpening some chisels, I had this thought. The only part of the chisel that is actually cutting 
is the edge where the micro bevel and the back meet. So what's the point in sharpening the main bevel? I decided to sharpen the main bevel to 1,000 grit on my whetstones in order to maintain the angle and take only the micro and back of the, the chisel up to the usual 8,000 grit. I did this for a couple of months. I did this a couple of months ago, and a few sharpenings later have not noticed any difference in the performance of my chisels. I can't be the only one who does this. Ever heard of this? Any thoughts? Uh, no, you're not the only one that does this because nope. I do the same thing. Me too. Um, there, there's, there's a lot of people who came to the same realization. Why am I doing all this work up here when that's not actually doing any of the cutting? Uh, the part that I specifically wanted to address is his question, what's the point in sharpening the main bevel? Now, he's taking his main bevel to 1,000 grit, which is exactly what I do and what I think is sufficient. I think as you start to drop below that, it's kind of like um, if you sand something to 80 grit and then go to 320, you're never going to get that nice surface because you're going to have scratches that are, are deep, way too deep. So you'll get this kind of, you know, it may feel nice, but that's because the sand, the, the dust from the 320s filled in the scratches from the 80 grit. And when you finish it, it'll end up you getting swirl marks or whatever it is because those deeper grooves from the 80 grit are still there. So the same thing is going on with the chisel here. So imagine you now have ground or, or honed your, your 8,000 grit micro bevel. And essentially all that's done is overlay a deeper grooved surface behind it. And it just ends up being a, a weaker edge. You imagine as a steel comes to the edge, under a microscope, it's, it's really frayed. And the finer grit you get, the less fraying you see on that edge. So if you are essentially building your, your 8,000 grit on top of a frayed edge, it's, it's not going to have the same, same holding power, same durability. You may not actually get that 8,000 8,000 grit polish, uh, you'll find that it'll be really difficult or it's going to take a lot longer. So it's just one of those things where build your micro bevel on a good, a good foundation, in which case I think the 1,000 grit is, is, is plenty fine enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is uh, something that I think might be because the instructional aspects of this, we tend to come at it from assuming you haven't sharpened your chisel yet or you've never sharpened it properly. So a lot of times we'll explain, okay, now we're going to sharpen the, the primary bevel and then we're going to put on the micro bevel and what you might miss. And maybe it's only subtly mentioned if at all is that when I go back to this, because I now have that secondary bevel, that's the only thing I'm touching, you know, right. which, which for me is the joy of having the uh, Lee Valley uh, uh, honing guide is because I could just put that thing right back in and get right back to that perfect, like two, what is it? Two degree, uh, difference for the, for the micro bevel. And then the only time I'll go back to the primary, at least for me is once the secondary bevel gets too wide and <laughs> that it starts to become the new primary. Um, that might be when I go back to my, um, my primary bevel and rework it a little bit. Well, and to be fair, I'm not even working the entire primary bevel because it's a hollow ground. Right. So I'm working maybe, you know, so there's about a 16th of an inch of polished section on the toe and the heel. And then I go to my micro bevel. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, that's it. So, you know, the rest of that quote primary bevel is at what is my grinding wheel, like 60 grit or something like that. <laughs> right. It's a little um, scoop. So yeah, I mean that, that kind of illustrates it even more as long as that, you know, a strong enough, a wide enough section down near the cutting edge is refined. You're, you're just fine. You're going to have a, a very, 
very nice, sharp chisel that's going to be durable. Very nice. All right. Uh, Chris has a question here about hybrid saws. He says, I've heard of contractor-style table saws and cabinet-style saws. What's your take on hybrid saws? Grizzly advertises one of their models as a hybrid, and it's priced right in the middle ground. And he gives me the link here. Just wanted to know what your thoughts are. And uh, thanks for a great show. And I've got a burp. Excuse me. Oh, nice. I love that answer. I got well sick done. of I got sick of stifling it and I've got don't know why, but I've got a little bit of heartburn and I'm like, you know, it's not going to help anything if I just suck this down. So it's got to come out. You're still <laughs> upset that Nick's wife hates us. It's that's okay. what it is. It's got me all worked up now. Yeah. Thanks, Nick's wife. Um, uh. Okay. So he's looking at a 10 inch hybrid saw with riving knife about eight hundred and ninety four dollars, which is indeed a great price. Now, have you guys noticed because I certainly have that this whole hybrid saw thing has kind of gone by the wayside. Yeah, yes. it was it was so like early 2000. Yeah, and it was a little bit of a trend that the hybrid saws would kind of be the best of both worlds. You you get a, a slightly less powerful saw. You get a saw that can work on most garage or basement electrical systems, so it's 110. And you get all the great features of, a, of an upgraded saw with better fences, uh, arriving knives, and uh, great dust collection. And you, got, you kind of get that cabinet look, even though it's probably a little bit smaller. So that's what the hybrid saws were all about. And I think that just, they don't feel the need to use it. If you do a, like a few Google searches for these things, you won't really find many companies selling hybrid saws anymore. They don't call them hybrid. Uh, but if you look around, you will still find hybrid saws, like the ones that fit that description. So for instance, this Grizzly, yes, they call it hybrid, but look at uh, Powermatic's PM1000, right? You're looking at a slightly less powerful version of the PM2000. It works on 110 electricity. It's got the riving knife. It definitely has a cabinet saw look. And I think ultimately they're just selling less expensive cabinet saws now instead of calling them hybrid saws. Would You know, at least from my observation seems to be what's going on. Uh, so... Now that I said all that, what the heck was his question? <laughs> um, I think personally that hybrid saws in general are great or any lower powered cabinet saw that fits into this, this price range or this uh, description. Um, because I think that's that the, the things that I mentioned are fantastic options. Like the one thing about your contractors saws that like would drive me nuts. Like even it's not even about the power to me, it's the fence. Most of the time, the fence is garbage and it's difficult to lock down. It's hard to lock down consistently so that it's always uh, nice and parallel with your blade. So for me, having an upgraded fence, a Biesemeyer style or at least a you know, standard T-square style fence is huge. And for most people, having something that just connects to 110 but still gives you that cabinet saw look and feel is a really nice treat. So I think it really hits that uh, serious hobbyist small shop pro um, niche really, really nicely. Folks who don't quite need the full scale cabinet saw, but are beyond the point that they would want that portable style saw that you get from a contractor saw or, um, uh, you know, like the portable saws. Right. Uh, you know, the funny thing in this description is I'm, I'm looking at this grizzly description here and it, it, it refers to it as, uh, being very portable. <laughs> yeah. I'm not I, sure I, I see him. the, I'm not sure I see the portability here. Uh, you get the easy to transport weight and size. I don't know that I'd call that easy to transport, but <laughs> it's yeah. uh, it looks pretty substantial to me. Uh, but anyway, I do think that these hit a sweet spot on the market, but keep uh, keep your eye out for saws that aren't called hybrid because there may be other options out there. Yeah, I, I agree completely about like if you just 
an upgraded fence and stuff like that. Cause that was my, my grandfather's old saw, the one that I had for the longest time. That was the one thing I hated the most was the fence. But as soon as I was able to upgrade it to a, exactly a Beesmeyer fence, uh-huh. um, it was insane what I was finally able to do with that saw. It compensated for so much of the other things that it was lacking in. So oh, yeah, it makes a huge yeah. difference. I even put a, a Vega fence, V E G A was the name of the company. I put that on my old, uh, craftsman contractor and it was a game changer for me because the old the 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 one that came with the saw was sort of a circular tubular kind of fence and it just was crap it just did not work well at all um but the aftermarket fence was a total game changer for me yep cool yes yes what we said Yeah. All right. Hey, we have another question from uh, this one comes in from Tom and Tom asks, I've heard and read a lot about setting up a joiner, but I've never heard what I would see in a board jointed on a machine that was not set up correctly. Can you give me some examples? Um, Well, actually, to some degree, yes, because it's it it turns out that (laughs) Matt says, hold on, let me go to my shop for a minute. Exactly. Let's. I'm going to take the microphone with me. Let's go on a little field trip here. Uh, Really, the only thing I have with my particular uh, jointer is the the fence does not stay 90 degrees uh, to the bed. So I did a little investigating on this when I was hanging out with the guys at Steel City, and it turns out that actually my infeed table needs to be adjusted just slightly. But with that said, I think the the biggest thing you're going to see from a uh, improperly set up jointer is a lot of hair being ripped out as you suddenly run <laughs> your boards through and they keep coming out not flat at all. Because if if the uh, the table is like in, again in my situation the infeed table just needs to be adjusted slightly. It sounds like the left side of the infeed table is a little bit lower than the right side, uh, but amazingly it's somewhat uh, parallel enough with the outfeed that I can get a decent enough result with it. I'm getting nice flat boards, but man, when you try to edge joint it, forget about it. It doesn't matter how 90 degrees that fence is with either one of them, it's off. It's a weird it's a weird thing. Mm-hmm. I can't explain it trying to but i can't (laughs) well um what i've seen a lot is tapers yes that's exactly what i was thinking too is especially depending on on how how off it is you're yeah you know you're trying to you're trying to flatten but not so much a warped board but a board that obviously is not not plain it's not flat and so if it's off in any way yeah you're definitely going to create a taper over not just in the first pass, over a couple of passes as you're trying to get it done. Yeah, and I think the the way you know your your jointer is out of calibration is just you just can't get the damn board flat. Like right. Right. you try as you might, every pass you do, it's not perfect. Or or a lot of times for me with a jointer, it's about listening. Uh, in fact, most of my response to what I'm doing on the tool is uh, has to do with the sound. I don't have to even look at the surface. I can actually listen to it and tell you oh yeah, we hit the whole thing or there's a spot that I'm missing and I could even tell you where it's missing because I feel that sort of uh, feedback from the vibration. So if you go two or three times and there's still this one area that I'm not getting or, or last time I got a full pass, but this time it feels like the back didn't touch at all, um, you know that something's a little bit out of whack. Um, right, right. When, when Yeah, I'm, it's like this <clears throat> this progressive, you can hear it, you know, the cut getting wider yeah if you will yeah. and it progressively wider and wider and wider if it starts going the other direction something's weird something's yeah. off yeah um, it's, and let's face it there's not a lot of technique to using a power joiner if yeah. it's set up properly um there's not a whole lot that you have to do um and so if you find that you're having to do a whole lot of footwork or something like that you might have a problem 
Yeah, honestly, that that's the advice I give people when they it's like I've been trying to do it every which way. I'm putting pressure here, putting pressure there, and I can't. And I, and I say the same exact thing. If if the jointer is tuned up properly, it is a pleasure to use. And, 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 if you're having to work that hard, go get a hand plane. <laughs> right? <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, I mean there there's there there's definitely technique to it in terms of where you place the pressure, but it's almost intuitive as you push the piece over the the blades but you know with a little bit of attention to that you should be able to get good results and if you don't it's definitely a calibration issue unfortunately i think the jointer is probably the most annoying thing in the shop to calibrate that's exactly that's what i've been holding off for the longest time like i said it's really easy or the the issue that i'm running into really is it must be just that one side is off like probably a thousandth of an inch, something like that, you know, like really, yeah. really minor. So it doesn't affect it so much as I'm doing the face joint, which I can't explain that. It seems like that should still have the same effect, but apparently I must be putting the proper pressure in the location so that when it goes into the outfeed table, it comes out nice and flat. But man, when I go to do that edge jointing, <laughs> holy cats, <laughs> that just, they hear it across the street. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting. That is the only machine that I ever cared about thousandths of an inch when it came to adjusting. You know, I had I had the tools and things to check, you know, arbor run out and fence run out on my table saw. And I was like, you know, eh, that's okay. That's good enough. Yeah. You know, it'd be off, you know, we'll say, you know, five thousands of an inch. And I'm like, eh, that's fine. You got to the adjusting the joiner. And I that's the one time I used feeler gauges. Mm-hmm. Um, that really requires precise setup in order for it to work well. Um, yep. and, and, you know, once I finally got it there, you know, I, I specifically went out and bought like that four inch or four foot long Veritas straight edge. And I bought feeler gauges mostly to use as shims to like leave in there, um, mm-hmm. to, to shim it just right. That was definitely the most precise that I've ever had to be with a machine. Yeah. Yeah. It really bites you in the butt if it's not, unfortunately. Probably one of the reasons that was the first one I got rid of. <laughs> yeah. Not sad to see you go, Mr. Joyner. <laughs> All right. We've got a, an email from Robert, and uh, Robert is going to win the award for most detailed and most complex questions. He's got a couple into us now, and I think we've been avoiding them for for fact that we may have to write an essay in order to respond to some of his. So I'm going to bite the bullet on this one. This is a a question about chisels that probably could be pushed into a single topic show, but here we go. See what I can do. So he wants a good primer on chisels there. uh, He's heard of mortise chisels, butt chisels, firmer socket pattern, and and another that he can't think of right now. Some are self-explanatory. Like I assume a mortise chisel is for mortising uh, designed for heavy work and prying. But what about the others? I thought socket chisels were a specific type, uh, but now I've come to find out that it has more to do with how the handle's attached. I bought a set of butt chisels because it's fun to say, and that's the primary reason I'm reading this. Um, so what's with the names and what works where? So um, just rattle off some names here. The firmer chisels, bevel edge chisels, some people call them dovetail chisels, butt chisels, skew chisels, fishtail chisels, swan neck chisels, mortising chisels, pairing chisels, cranked neck chisels, and lock mortise chisels first off the top of my head. The thing is, they all will have specific uses sometimes. Um, when you when you find a chisel that has a very specific use, I find that it's a chisel that I need very little uh, and maybe not even at all. 
uh, skew chisels, fishnick chisels, swan neck chisels, those are all meant for very specific things. Like a swan neck provides a little bit of leverage for levering, levering waste out of the bottom of a mortise. Used them a couple times in the museum, see no reason to have them in my toolkit at home. Skew chisels, the only time I use one of those is actually a skew carving chisel for getting into small details. I've never really needed it in typical flat work. I have a fishtail chisel, and the idea there was to make cleaning out half-blind dovetails super easy, but it's cleaning out a spot on the half-blind dovetail that doesn't need to be clean because it's covered up once you put the pin or the tailboard in place. So it's one of those, the more specific use of the chisel, I find the less reason to have it in your toolbox. So when you get, that really leaves us with like mortising chisels, and unless you're doing a lot of chopping of mortises by hand, it's not necessary. It's something you really don't need. So firmer chisels, those are the ones with the flat sides, the square sides, and bench chisels. Um, usually bench chisels have bevel edges to them. Those are really the chisels that come up more than anything else. You'll hear pairing chisel come up, and there are very specific chisels that are, that are pairing chisels. They're usually very long, thin blades, kind of whippy, um, bevels on the side. Those are actually much more of an 18th and 19th century phenomenon. There really aren't very many makers today. In fact, Blue Spruce may be the only one that's actually making real thin, long-bladed pairing chisels. Everything else is vintage. But really, a pairing chisel depends upon the bevel. Um, the lower you make that bevel, the more suited it can be for pairing. So you can take a firmer chisel or a bevel edge chisel or a butt chisel and grind that, that bevel back and you're going to have a pairing chisel, something that's going to be suited for, for pairing. Generally, the longer the blade, the, the more reference area you can get, but you can still do pairing with any of these chisels. So as far as the specific uses, you just need to think about how much chopping, how much pounding with a mallet am I going to be doing with it and how much non-mallet where I'm just using hand pressure Am I going to be using it? So the difference between, you know, pounding on the chisel and using it for pairing. Anything beyond that, I think we get way too specialized and too caught up in the gimmick factor of all this. Mm -hmm. um, butt chisels are generally shorter and they're, they're so-called because they're used for doing um, mortises for, for butt hinges. Oh, Matt, you've um, been using them wrong all these years. Oh, yeah, man. well, if, if you but, have but, fine but. hardware like Brusso hardware, <laughs> Sorry, I throw that in there. But, uh, you would use a butt chisel, and they were generally shorter because a lot of times maybe you needed to get into a tighter confines, um, like inside a cabinet. Maybe you need to get inside of it to cut out um, mm -hmm. a, a mortise for a chisel. That's where the butt chisel came in. It's also kind of like choking up on a bat. The more you choke up on it, the more accurate you can be, um, and that's that's the the same principle there. But I've never needed butt chisels like that because I've never needed to get into a really, really tight area. And if I have, that's when you can use something like a lock mortise chisel to get inside like a drawer box or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I would worry less about the really specialized chisels and really focus on bench chisels. Your typical Veritas, Lee Nielsen, Stanley um, with the bevel edges, those are bench chisels. And I prefer to call them that because you use them at the bench for just about anything. Um, there's no need to get too much more specialized than that. I have quite a few firmer chisels just because I like a wider, longer chisel, and those tend to come um, vintage. 
And you can find a lot of those because there were literally millions upon millions of them made in the 18th and 19th century. Mm-hmm. So there's your primer on chisels, Robert. Hope it helps. Cool. And uh, I always assumed that the butt chisels were only available for proctologists. I didn't realize that that's why you could pick them up without any problem. <laughs> it's actually for removing really hard, hard stains. <laughs> Disgusting. <laughs> you know, I'll I say something to my wife about that. I would say about 99% of the work I do with a chisel is done with a bench chisel. I think most <laughs> yeah. woodworkers are well served with a good set of bench chisels and will never really need or can get by. Uh, you know, just with that, you don't, you know, I've got one fishtail chisel for the same reason you do Shannon, but ultimately cool. it, yeah. I, <laughs> I splurged one day and was like, Oh, what the heck? I'll get this. But I've, I've owned butt chisels and subsequently sold them. I've owned, um, some of the, uh, the skew chisels and subsequently sold them, had a pairing chisel, sold them. Cause guess what? I could pair with my bench chisels too. Um, yep. you know, it's not, like you said, it's not the ideal bevel angle necessarily to call it officially a pairing chisel, but they pair pretty darn well when they're nice and sharp. So, you know, for me, it's just the, the bench chisels are really ultimately the way to go. I did add mortising chisels though, because there are times where I just want that really nice uniform square, uh, very fat bodied piece of steel that I can hammer the heck out of, um, and go into really some dense hardwoods and not know that I'm not going to mangle my slightly more fragile beveled, uh, bench chisels that are more for fine work. Right. That's a good point. Especially if you work with a lot of the you know, jungle woods like you've been doing lately, Mark. Yes. That stuff, that's very unforgiving wood. Oh, yeah. Man, that sounds really offensive. <laughs> what? You're nuts. All right. <laughs> so now that now that Matt's angered you, um, how, how can you support us? That's a question we get a lot. So first of all, at the top of the show, I mentioned some of our uh, donors who helped us out financially, which we always appreciate. So just go to woodtalkshow.com, look over on the left-hand side and look for those donation links. And we always appreciate that sort of help. You can also buy a Wood Talk t-shirt at twwstore.com, which is back. Uh, it's open again, even though my mom's not home yet. I reopened the store because uh, I've got I got a few emails from folks who are like, what the what's going on? It's been a couple. I of need weeks. my coffee mug. <laughs> I need my uh, yeah. I need my wood talk shirt so I could look hot and sexy. And also, you could help us out by leaving us a review in the iTunes Store. Just look us up and click on ratings and reviews, and click that star rating, just like CPad 1615 and Super Slim 08 did. And uh, I was gonna read it, but I don't know where. Oh, there it went. Sorry, I had it here. It was so it. slim, it was too hard to see. Barely could see it. Too many windows open here. Um, Super Slim 08 says, love you guys. When can we expect a world tour? Maybe a meet and greet. Look forward to the show every week. Uh, thanks for that. And the reason I wanted to bring that up is because I, I think it's probably safe to say that every woodworking in America, even if we can't all three of us make it, I think for now on, we probably are going to have some sort of a wood talk meetup since that went so well last time. Uh, where, where's Woodworking in America? It's in North Carolina this year? Yes. Yeah. Near mm-hmm. Wilmington? No. Where is it? I can't remember. Where they make cigarettes. Salem. <laughs> Salem. Winston-Salem. Winston-Salem. Yeah, cigarette place. I was going to say something Salem. Um, so if you're in the North Carolina area or you have the means to get there, that would be probably the next time to uh, to join us for one of these meetups. Um, and it's always a good time. So. Oh. You know, we're going to discuss this off air. I, I'm just announcing this to you guys. But if one of us can't make it there, the others are obligated to walk around with a uh, iPad and we'll screen time. <laughs> we'll do some FaceTime nice. right there. An iPad on a stick. I like it. Yes. Very cool. <laughs> All right, Matt, how about you give them the contact info and we'll get out of here. All right. Hey, folks, you have a comment, a question, or a topic suggestion. You have several different ways to contact us. Leave us a voicemail on Skype. Our username is Wood Talk Online. Call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. 
Email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com or leave us a comment on our Wood Talk Facebook page. And if you're ever looking for the show notes or downloads from today's show or, say, a previous episode, because we've got a bunch of those. I don't know if you're aware of that, guys. We have a whole mess of them. Yes, we do. You're going to find all of those over at woodtalkshow.com. That's so awesome. Cool. It's cool. Great show. Well, thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll catch you next time. See ya. Bye. about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow-up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.